anymore. I mean, effectively, the flow of of gas uh, is is shut down from Russia to Europe. The flow of oil is at a trickle. It's harder to get more extreme than that in terms of impacts on on European markets, and that you know those are the key impacts of the the conflict in Ukraine. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So here we are at the beginning of October, early October in 2022, and uh, all the conversations that are out there um, seem to always come back to uh, fear, come back to anxiety, come back to the, the the incoming recession, if that's going to happen or not, inflation, um, and uh, interrupted supply chains. So uh, I just came back from uh, Expo Real in Munich, um, and that's certainly where the conversation was. A lot of tension, but a lot of kind of determined... Um, I don't know, optimism that we can do better, that we can get through this. So coming back from that, I wanted to make sure I spoke with someone who actually knew what he was talking about. Um, and that's uh, Brian Klinsick, which many of you know, he's the incoming global head of research and strategy for LaSalle Investment Management. So thank you uh, for joining me, Brian, on the AFIRE podcast. Thanks, Gunnar. So I guess let's just kind of start a, a general view. How are you seeing things given um, all the fear and anxiety that's out there at the moment? Yeah, it's a pretty tough time to have a crystal ball. It's a very cloudy crystal ball. Um, I think I might take us back to early 2021 to make some comparisons to the, you know, the path out of the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, back in, at that time, we were predicting that the acute phase of COVID would sooner or later transition to one where the virus would become endemic and we'd be in the stabilized living with COVID period. Um, and we've reached that period. Uh, at the time, many people thought that reaching that, that period would lead us to a kind of uh, roaring 20s economic environment. And we, parts of that have come true, but it's turned out to be rather more complex uh, picture. Um, so. I, but, but thinking about this, this current episode, this different kind of episode, I would still divide thinking about this acute phase that we're in right now, back when we were like, thinking back, the acute phase of COVID was 2021 when we didn't really have vaccines deployed uh, into the population, and then this more stabilized future phase. And I think that the, the, the stabilization um, and will be something that is, is pretty resembles in many ways the world that we've known. Um, real estate remains an attractive uh, part of the portfolio. Uh, it has uh, characteristics that um, are in demand for investors and um, transactions occur on transparent pricing uh, without the kind of bid-ask spread and the volatility and the lack of clarity that we have today. So that's the sort of living with you know, the, this episode, living with higher, maybe a little bit higher inflation period. But right now we're in that acute phase. We, 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 we don't, there's so many uncertainties uh, that we have about um, economies, about inflation, policy responses to them. You know, the inflationary pressures that we're seeing today were first unleashed by um, pandemic-related supply chain challenges. The frictions of reopening um, that, large fiscal stimulus, pent up consumer savings, 
but they've really been exacerbated by this unexpected hot war in Europe's periphery, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that's, you know, played havoc with key commodity markets, especially energy, but other things, chemicals, basic grains that go into food prices. So throughout 2022, inflation just keeps surprising on the high side. You know, I see, you see those charts, those whisker charts with what are the forecasts um, at different points in time. And it's just that constant uh, expectation that inflation is peaking uh, and those whiskers keep ticking down. But, you know, it, it, instead it keeps going up. Those, those forecasts have been wrong again and again. So, you know, tighter financial conditions has caused falls in the value of a wide range of, of assets. Um, and that's most, you know, easily measurable in the, you know, publicly traded high frequency parts of the capital markets that have um, transparency on, on tr transaction pricing. So not private direct real estate. Um, private direct real estate, of course, you know, should be priced uh, in the broader capital markets relative to uh, other inv investable options. You know, investors should get paid similar returns for similar risks. You know, any free lunches should be arbitraged away. But in practice, what we find is that private real estate pricing is really only impacted when the shifts in, there shifts in the cost of real estate debt. Because that, that marginal buyer of income producing real estate is most often a leveraged buyer. And that creates this time lag between shifts in the broader capital markets and changes in private real estate pricing. And we're really only recently really beginning to feel that impact of repriced real estate debt in what's happening in direct transactional markets. As you know, the all the evidence that we'd been seeing over the summer of, of deals really was kind of evidence of a, of a world that no longer existed uh, because they were transactions that have been in the pipeline for some time. So it's almost as if uh, the problem isn't a problem until debt decides it's a problem. And we're kind of at that point right now. Yeah, debt is the transmission mechanism of the of the broader world into real estate. And so uh, that's why we one of the reasons why we have these big lags uh, in private direct real estate. You, you, you know, I would look to the listed markets for, you know, perhaps a, 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 the listed real estate markets is a sense of what the kind of ballpark of price declines would be if real estate, private real estate, were able to be priced uh, with high frequency. And those private, those public market valuation decreases are really big, especially in, uh, here in Europe. Um, and uh, you know, investors are debating now whether public or private market market valuations are correct. Um, but they both can't be. Uh, they 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 can't both be correct. So um, that is, you know, the the disconnect that we're at today, and of course, it leads to a big bid-ask spread. Um, the, the there are big macro questions as to how this all stabilizes and whether those whiskers will keep pointing the wrong direction and will have inflation and and, and therefore you know uh, interest rates uh, surprising on the upside. Um, you know how long will it take all this uh, inflation to come under control? How rate how high rates how high will they have to be? Uh, in, you know, how, how will they get in the meantime? Will a severe economic downturn be required or a mild one uh, or none at all? Um, w there's pretty much an inevitability of recession in Europe at this point because of the nature of the supply side 
shock to uh, uh, on the energy side to this to the European economy. But will the other parts of the world be somewhat insulated from that? It feels just a little bit like, and I hesitate to draw parallels to uh, the GFC because there are big differences between this period and the GFC. Um, but it feels a little bit like those moments in, earlier on in the subprime uh, uh, residential mortgage situation in the U.S. when uh, people in the European market said that's just a U.S. problem and we're not exposed to that and it won't impact us here in Europe and we're going to continue to grow to, irrespective of what happens in North America. Um, and that was, of course, totally wrong. Uh, Europe ended up having a pretty severe uh, recession and particularly uh, severe in parts of Europe that had forms of the kind of balance sheet issues that U.S. households did in their residential mortgage borrowing. Um, now, there is a really big difference today in the energy shock point, which is that uh, gas prices in Europe are up six, roughly six times what they were before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And energy prices, in the, at least in terms of gas in the U.S., are basically pretty much close to flat. Um, we've seen oil prices. Crude oil is a much more globally integrated market. So they move more in lockstep across the world, less dependent on, you know, where the pipelines actually flow than, than how gas works. But we've, we've seen those oscillate, come down a bit. Um, fundamentally, the, the, the nature of this inflationary episode for um, Europe is, is worse than other, than other places because it is coming from this localized, gas-driven uh, energy, energy shock. Um, and then, and then, you know, I said at the beginning, what does that stabilized environment look like? How long does it take us to get there? Um, will inflation become to you, to borrow a kind of comparison or metaphor with COVID, will it become endemic? Will it get stickier at a higher level than we've had in, in recent decades and pushing rates a little bit permanently higher? Um, I think there's a case for for that. In uh, one of the the several key drivers of low ever lower inflation and interest rates uh, in this this sort of last couple decades has been globalization and the efficiencies that come out of globalization. And what we're seeing today is that the world is fracturing a bit, and um, the 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 it, that makes a more dramatic story. Uh, for observers of geopolitics than perhaps is what is suggested in the numbers, which is um, different kind of globalization, more globalization in services, less globalization in goods production. Some of that's good. That's bringing production back on shore to rich economies because automation uh, has actually enabled that. Um, it's been, in, you know, that trend has been boosted by a desire for safety in, uh, in supply chain, so making it locally. Those are not bad things, and they actually have positive implications for some kind of some kinds of real estate. Um, uh, but even if we have, just in aggregate, a slower pace of, an, of, of globalization, that probably is slightly more inflationary than the kind of world we were living in before these geopolitical divisions uh, deepen somewhat. Uh, well, beyond geopolitics, I, I'm very curious about, and we haven't been talking about it as much, and perhaps we should, since it's like the one force that we cannot deny, 
is that the demographic picture has been dramatically shifting as well. And that has been one of the factors driving uh, kind of a Goldilocks inflationary environment for the last few decades. Uh, is that coming to an end or, or, or where does that happen as we're seeing the, the, the Western economies and, and the Asian economies basically aging in some cases rapidly? Um, how does that shift as you have more and more people retired uh, and fewer and fewer people? Uh, putting money into uh, 401ks, et cetera. Um, how do you see that altering in the decade that we're facing? Uh, the fundamental demographic picture isn't changed. Um, and the, the fundamental demographic picture is one of rich economies and middle income economies uh, having maturing demographic profile, older populations, uh, working age populations that slow down in their growth, ultimately peak, and then decline. Nothing about this inflation, nothing about the pandemic has changed that. And that is a fundamentally uh, deflationary or, 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 or it pulls inflation down from what it would be uh, kind of trajectory. It's also inflationary for now in terms of what it means for asset prices because of the savings profile that, that, that you, you uh, mentioned. Now, eventually, that savings gets unwound, but we're still in that accumulation phase because that is a it's a kind of a pig in the python uh, from that broader demographic profile. Um, but but I think that the demographic picture globally in in rich and middle income economies is one of the reasons why we think that the sort of uh, stabilized phase, not the acute phase that we're in right now, the stabilized phase doesn't look radically different than the kind of environment that we had before, even if it, it's not one of ever lower interest rates and, and inflation, it's a, it's a more stabilized at a kind of moderate low level of inflation type of environment. So we're seeing this acute phase right now, um, and it looks like it's going to be acute for a while. Um, as of this morning, there were new missile attacks all over the Ukraine. I think that's going to, to change, continue to create uh, problems as we go forward. But what do you look for to indicate that we might be moving into that? I mean, what are the kind of factors that you think are important as you're trying to track when we get out of the acute phase and into more of the, gee, we're just living with it phase? Some of the initial triggers of the inflation, inflation that we're seeing, like supply chain pressure, already seem to be resolving. Um, the situation in Ukraine is, look, there is absolutely no way to find any kind of positive or silver lining in a situation like that. But as it relates to impacting, you know, developed market, financial markets, real estate markets, Except in very extreme scenarios geopolitically, which I, I dare I dare not even mention what those are, but I think you can imagine what I mean. I think we're reaching the point of maximal impact of the war. I mean, effectively, the flow of of gas uh, is is shut down from Russia to Europe. The flow of oil is at a trickle. It's harder to get more extreme than that in terms of impacts on on. European markets, and that you know, those are the key impacts of the the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, what that is, what that has spurred, is a uh, rapid 
reorientation of the European energy system, if you will. Um, it is uh, striking when you think back on the last couple decades how complacent Europe has been about where it gets its, its energy from. And there have been plenty of calls uh, uh, about this, but if you look at Germany's um, tolerance of, of Russia, um, there's a reason for it, which is that Germany is an industrial economy, has been dependent on Russian uh, gas, um, and that has been un unwound. That dependency that was built up over decades is being unwound in a matter a matter of weeks. And um, I call it the sort of chaotic collision between uh, uh, doing what's right about saving the world in terms of uh, decarbonizing and doing what we have to do uh, to have energy security, what we have to do for the bottom line. Um, we have tenants coming to us saying, um, you know, the lease indexation that passes through inflation is saying this, but we can't afford it because of what's coming through in the on the service charges on the you know the the energy side which is supposed to be passed through to us they're shopping around for more energy efficient buildings that have service charges that uh, are more secure so this is like energy security not at a national level but at the building level and it wasn't too long ago that this felt like decarbonizing buildings um, moving to renewables, particularly on-site renewables, installing solar in buildings. It felt like something that we had to do because there would be a regulatory expectation of it. There would be a tenant expectation of it to meet their uh, pledges for net zero carbon. Um, maybe there would be a rental premium or a cap rate, a lower cap rate for a building that had those characteristics. Suddenly, this is just fundamental to the bottom line. And this is happening, happening rapidly in Europe. Ultimately, this is a really positive thing and it will lead to positive change, but it's happening with a high degree uh, of short-term pain. So um, that's why I'm optimistic for that stabilized environment. I think, you know, really truly reorienting the European energy system, if you will, is a multi-generational project to get somewhere where these dependencies are not causing the kind of pressure uh, that we're seeing today probably takes 12 to 18 months. Um, you know, the, the initial stages are rolling out liquid natural gas uh, facilities and changing the flows and directions of pipeline. Um, the longer term is about renewables and, 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 and greener sources and, and, and localizing that to our buildings. But uh, so, so there's kind of, I think you have to really break it down into the short-term acute phase, the kind of stabilized phase, and then the longer-term period that I think will will cause Europe to be much more adapted to to the future that lies ahead in terms of energy. And historically, that certainly it, it is in line with the way that we address that kind of fundamental change. That it does not happen until there's some sort of acute trigger. Um, and this was always going to be painful for us to move. You know, it was never going to be all you know warm and fuzzy for us to move to a more renewable based uh, energy economy. Uh, but this seems to force it, and it seems to me that potentially could create some inherent long term advantages for the first movers in terms of moving towards a more independent um, energy profile and a more renewable energy profile. That I think you know certainly Europe stands to benefit from this in eighteen months plus. 
um, going forward. Would, would you agree with that? I mean, Europe already has first mover advantage. Um, if you look at the uh, carbon intensity of the electric grid in Europe, it is so much more efficient than what you see in North America. Um, far more use of nuclear, far, far more use of renewables. Um, and, you know, the U.S. doesn't really have a national electrical grid. It's sort of regionalized and, and you know, not interconnected to the extent you'd expect. Uh, that's why you have things like blackouts in Texas, because their their uh, grid isn't connected to others in ways that would equal, equalize the kind of issues that they had, things in California. But the U.S. in aggregate, the grid is much dirtier, more coal in certain parts of the U.S., um, more natural gas uh uh, peaker kind of plants and um, less renewables. Um, that at the moment is not a disadvantage to the U.S. at all. The U.S. is pretty self-sufficient uh, in terms of en- where it gets its energy from. Um, has a lot of uh, the you know potential for renewables, and it has a lot of its own fossil fuels. Um, in a in a in a regime in which uh, there's taxation of carbon emissions, Europe has a lead uh, for sure, um, even today. And it's going to get a further lead because of the the pressure from the, um, uh, from the crisis that it's facing. Today. We will pick up the second part of this fascinating discussion with Brian Klinsick, the incoming global head of research and strategy at LaSalle, where he will discuss how the changing energy infrastructure and ESG generally our impact in global cross-border investing into the United States. We'll also be talking about distressed or the lack of distressed assets in property markets and a more nuanced view of the future office markets in the United States. Stay tuned. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.